Adams is a spokesperson for the English collective of prostitutes. Two immigrant women living in England who had been inspired by church occupations and a sex strike of workers in France formed the English collective of prostitutes in 1975 to campaign for the abolition of the prostitution laws. Nikki has worked within the collective for over 30 years. Her work has helped set legal precedents which challenge discrimination and establish sex workers' rights to protection. Nikki, can I first ask you to outline the history of the English Collective of Prostitutes? What kinds of issues have you taken up over the years? Thank you, Leanne. Yes, well, as you said, the English Collective of Prostitutes was started by two immigrant women in England who saw what was happening in France, which was a big movement of thousands of women who occupied churches and went on strike to protest really horrific murders and violence and the police inaction and abuse against those murders. And they saw what was happening in France and wanted to form a collective here. They, at the time, the prejudice and stigma was even worse than it is today, and they couldn't be public in any kind of way, probably also because they were immigrant women. And they asked Selma James, who was the founder of the Wages for Housework campaign, who you interviewed previously, to be our first spokesperson. Selma was not a sex worker, and she did speak for the organization for a number of years until we developed a policy of not saying who was and who wasn't working, which meant, which really kept us safe and meant that we weren't, the, the state wasn't able to kind of pick us off or pick off our spokeswomen in the way that they did do with some other organizations. We've since expanded uh, into a national network. Our network includes Wales, it's England and Wales. There's other organizations in Scotland who are very active, although we do also have a network in Scotland. And the focus of our campaigning right from the beginning was two things primarily, decriminalization on grounds of safety, pointing to the way that the prostitution laws undermine sex workers' safety, and also institutionalize women in prostitution, and also getting money into women's hands, really, uh, addressing the fact that uh, most sex workers and mothers working to support families, that women go into prostitution to get an income, and that if uh, women had money in our hands, we'd have more choices to be able to leave prostitution if and when we want, that no one should be forced into prostitution by poverty. And so, those have been the priorities over the years. The kind of uh, activities right back to the uh, 70s, a lot of that has really focused on violence against sex workers, which is still at epidemic uh, proportions. But for example, in the, 70, in, in, in the 80s, we were outside the court picketing to protest the murder of 13 women by the Yorkshire Ripper and the kind of official disregard for women's lives, the way they spoke about sex workers at the time and the way that uh, women's lives weren't seen to be valued. Then moving forward in, again in the early 80s, we occupied a church for 12 days in the middle of King's Cross, which was a red light area. It's an area where our women's centre was based and we went into the church to protest police illegality and racism. There, it, it was a culmination of a real campaign of harassment by the police against working women in the area. And that occupation 
publicized what was going on with sex workers in a way that had not happened before and really put the policing of prostitution on the political agenda. And it really brought in a lot of community support. You know, in the 90s, we did a private prosecution for rape, which was the first successful private prosecution for rape in England and Wales, where we, a serial rapist had attacked at least two women, we heard, in fact, that attacked more. The Crown Prosecution Service refused to prosecute, and so we had to take the case to court. And it took three and a half years, but the man was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison on exactly the same evidence that the Crown Prosecution Service had said was not enough to prosecute. And that was a landmark case as well, in that it really established sex workers' right to protection, the same kind of protection that should be available to other women. So over the years, you know, there's been a lot of kind of high points like that. And at the same time, there's an enormous amount of daily casework and campaigning that we do, helping women in our network defend themselves against criminal charges and also getting justice against violence. You mentioned criminal charges there, and we've talked about the prostitution laws. How have you campaigned to abolish the prostitution laws and what are they? Well, yeah, the prostitution laws are really draconian. They make it illegal to work on the street and to work together with another woman from premises. And uh, if you work on the street, you can be prosecuted for loitering and soliciting and working together with even just one other woman means you can be prosecuted for brothel keeping and controlling. And many women do. Thousands of women still are being raided, arrested, prosecuted, and sometimes even imprisoned under the prostitution laws. And what it means in practice is that on a day-to-day level, despite it not being illegal to exchange sex for money, to be a sex worker, we are forced to choose between possible arrest and keeping ourselves safe or avoiding a criminal record and putting ourselves in danger. And that's not a choice that any woman should have to make. And so we are campaigning to abolish the prostitution laws for full decriminalization. We look to New Zealand, which is the only country in the world that's actually decriminalized uh, sex work. They did it in 2003, and there's masses of evidence to show that it has improved sex workers' safety and welfare. And so we're looking to that as a model, although there's one bit of the law that we don't like, which is the way that it particularly targets migrant women, But in general, that law has been well established and well studied and has really been shown to be of massive benefit on grounds of safety. So that's the kind of law that we want. And how we campaign is really, again, on a number of different levels. We do a lot of casework where women who have been prosecuted under the law, we campaign with them and as part of our network and also help them ensure that they get the best defense in court, that they're best able to defend themselves in court. And in some cases, we actually manage to get the charges dropped before it even comes to court, which is great. But we really point to the way that the laws undermine safety. And then we also work in other areas trying to change hearts and minds and also to change the law with parliamentarians. You mentioned New Zealand there, and it's great that there is a a model to look at. Many feminists have advocated the Scandinavian model as a legal basis for prostitution. Can you tell us what's wrong with that approach? Well, increasing the criminalisation of sex work via the criminalising clients is an absolute disaster for sex workers. It undermines safety. 
it makes it harder for sex workers to come forward and report violence. In the countries where it's been introduced, it's been seen to increase violence, increase stigma. In Sweden, for example, which is one of the which the first country where that law was brought in, you know what women describe is that the police put them under surveillance. They're more likely to be evicted. They can lose custody of their children more easily. And in Ireland, which is another country where that law has been brought in, violent attacks against sex workers went up by 92%. And it has completely dismantled any trust between sex workers and the police where you will be able to come forward and report violence. It means, that, for example, if you're working inside a flat, you can't report violence because you know then that you will reveal the location of where you're working and the police will be able to put you under surveillance under using the excuse that they're going after clients but in fact it's sex workers that get arrested most frequently under that law and at the moment women working on the street and in premises want to be able to check out clients they want to be able to look at the phone number see if there's been a record of that person attacking or being aggressive towards any other woman. And you can't do any of that because you can't get information from the clients who are now fearful of being arrested. So it is really a, a disaster. And it's really, a, you know, wrong-minded because what it's fundamentally doing is increasing police powers against sex workers. That We don't want that kind of law and order approach. You know, the police are abusing the powers they have at the moment. So the last thing we want is for them to be given more powers and instead, what we're saying, these proposals are coming from feminist politicians in many cases. And we're saying, how come you're not fighting for pay equity? How come you're not opposing the cut to universal credit? How come you're not helping women out of poverty so that we have the choice to leave prostitution? If you want to reduce prostitution, that's what you should be doing, because prostitution is increasing now because women's poverty is increasing, especially since the austerity cuts, which particularly targeted women, but also since the pandemic. And, you know, that prostitution is not, the, the, the big increase is not fueled by men's desire for sex, it's fueled by women's need for money. So tackle the poverty that women are suffering. And that's the way that we can actually ensure that women can get out of prostitution if and when they choose. And I have to just say, we're doing quite a lot of work in Wales at the moment. I know we're called the English Collects for Prostitutes, but we do have a big network in Wales. And we're working with politicians and with academics and people in the community to see how the demand for decriminalization can be pushed forward there. And people are speaking there about exactly the same situation as we're facing nationally and internationally, which is that women's poverty is increasing, child poverty is increasing. I think Wales has some of the worst figures for child poverty of all the nations of the UK. Horrifying, really horrifying. And at the same time, the response there has been crackdowns by the police. You may know, you know, that in Cardiff, there's been a whole targeting of street workers. And in Swansea, they were actually using public space protection orders against sex workers. And those civil orders are very dangerous. They are really setting up a parallel legal system where you don't have to prove guilt. They're given an order based on police evidence alone. But then when you breach the order, it becomes a criminal offence and you're fined. And that's the way now that some women have been ending up in prison because a prison sentences for loitering and soliciting were abolished. But 
these civil orders are still having that kind of impact. And it's really horrendous because once you have a criminal record for prostitution, and especially if you end up in prison, of course, that sabotages your chances of leaving prostitution and getting any other job. A lot of women in our network would like to go into care work. They're uniquely qualified for it because primary carers for children and others in the community, they would do really well in that line of work, but they absolutely can't consider it because of their criminal record for prostitution. So, you know, you really feel like the priority to kind of decriminalize and get rid of these criminal laws is absolutely urgent and absolutely needed. And it's devastating for us that feminist politicians won't side with us and help us in all the ways that we're trying to keep ourselves safe and get rid of these criminal laws and instead are siding with the state and increasing promote you know proposing to increase police powers against us i agree that's more than disappointing isn't it it's a travesty really and they should stand in with other women but the question of class comes into this and poverty and class are big drivers here the people with the most criminal records are the people who are come from working class backgrounds I'm interested in some of the early slogans of the collective, which include for prostitutes against prostitution and all work is prostitution. Can you explain the thinking behind these slogans and are they still relevant today? Yes, they're very much relevant today. I mean, in fact, that was the name of one of our early documents and it was written to establish that we are not our work, you know, that we're for the workers and against the work and that we won't be pushed to defend our job in order to defend ourselves against you know, the prejudice and the way that some people within the women's liberation movement and on the left were looking down their noses at, um, you know, at sex workers. I, the whole all work is prostitution is not necessarily something that we would say that much now because you, know, you don't want to offend people by labeling their work as prostitution but a lot of people in a lot of other jobs can see the similarity between what they do and sex workers work and I think I mean I was looking at some of the early documents and one of the things we said was whether we fuck for money wait on tables pack biscuits type letters drive lorries bear children teach in schools or work in the coal mines we're forced to sell our bodies and our minds Our whole lives are stolen from us by work. And it was a really good document because you could see we were really standing by our right to refuse poverty and to refuse dependence on men and to stand up to women in the women's liberation movement who were, you know, disparaging against sex workers. And we were saying, you know, we're not ashamed of anything we've had to do to feed our families and to support our children. And, you know, we stand by that and pointing to the similarities, really but really kind of taking our place in the working class movement for more money and less work. And that's definitely where we are today too. What can you do to help protect immigrant women or trans women or other women who may find it even more difficult to turn to the police when crimes are committed against them? Well, it's certainly true that migrant and trans women and women of colour are particularly targeted under the prostitution laws. And there's a big group of migrant women in our organization who really spearheaded some of those campaigns against police illegality and racism. For many years, migrant sex workers in particular have been targeted under anti-trafficking legislation. I know it sounds a bit outlandish, but it's absolutely true that in this country and internationally, 
anti-trafficking laws and policies have primarily been used to raid and arrest and evict and even deport migrant sex workers. There's this kind of way of labeling all migrant sex workers as victims of trafficking that justifies raids on uh, working premises where migrant women are working in particular. And then instead of genuine victims of trafficking getting help, what happens instead is that migrant sex workers are arrested and often deported. And we've had to fight over the years many times including during mass raids in Soho, the area in central London, where a lot of women work in walk-up flats, almost all migrant women working, uh, but they work with a maid in a flat that's kind of open to the street and have a lot of support from the local community there. And it's a much safer way to work because of that, both because you're working with somebody else and also you have people outside that you can call on for help if anything happens. And the police descended on Soho, targeted migrant women there, said they were doing it in the name of saving victims of rape and trafficking. No victims were found. And instead, migrant women were arrested and some were threatened with deportation. And we had to do a big campaign against the closure orders there, which we won. Of all the 20 flats that were closed, 18 reopened, only two were lost at that point. And it was really part of a big push for gentrification and a big land grab of that central London area, which in fact you see internationally that often the areas where sex workers are working, if the gentrification moves in, they try to move sex workers out. But I think a lot of people in the Soho community felt were ready to defend sex workers because they really felt that they were integral to that kind of unique character of that area. And that if sex workers left, or were pushed out, then others would be next. So it was a big kind of sex migrant sex worker-led struggle against police abuse and raids and arrests and criminalization, which we did prevail, but the attack has been relentless. And in many ways, we're really up against the same feminist politicians who use trafficking to justify police crackdowns and the criminalization of clients and ultimately the abolition of prostitution and in the course of it caused great harm to sex workers who are working and particularly to migrant women and the situation for migrant women definitely got worse after Brexit in the run-up to the Brexit vote and afterwards because the police racism and abuse was worse and so people were being you know the police were acting very illegally just picking up women on the street, demanding IDs, telling them that they had to buy a ticket to go home, even though they had the right to be here. And that's a bit of an ongoing fight. So it is really a big thrust of our, you know, of our work, you know, the fact, the ways in which the prostitution laws are racist and used disproportionately against people of colour. And you see that even more in the US. We have an international network with sex worker organizations in Thailand in power and also in the US called US Prostitutes Collective. And a lot of the experience that we have fighting these raids and arrests and deportations, we've learned a lot from our international network, particularly women in the global south who really are at the sharp end of these anti-trafficking policies and the ways in which they're used to stop women crossing international borders. But also just generally internationally, we've learned a lot and have you know, gained a lot of strength being connected with other sex worker groups across the, across the globe, really. Do you work with trans women as well? Yes, trans women are very much part of our network. And 
I think, you know, it's very, for us, it's been horrifying, the kind of witch hunt against trans women that has come down and the kind of hate speech and the, the real kind of vicious attacks. And when we've looked at that and, you know, with trans women in our group, you know, work to defend ourselves against those kind of attacks. When you look at it, it's exactly the same people that have been attacking sex workers for years. And, you know, it really seems to be rooted in their kind of elitist view that they have a right to decide who's the right kind of woman. You know, way back in the times of the Yorkshire Ripper, the Attorney General then said that the saddest part of this whole incident was that the women that were killed were sex workers and not respectable women. And you feel like in some ways that same attitude of deciding who are the good girls and who are the bad girls is still prevalent among that kind of elitist feminist view. What are the key priorities for the collective now? I mean, you've talked quite a bit about police action, the law that needs changing, the decriminalisation, austerity. But what, what are the priorities and what can allies do to support the work that you do? Yeah, well, our first priority is decriminalisation. We have to get the laws off our backs. It really, I mean, even on a basic level, it stops people seeing who sex workers are. You know, we are the mothers, there's the aunties, the wives, the people in the community that are keeping people together, that whose income supports families and others. And that's not seen, it's not acknowledged. We don't, our contribution to society isn't counted because we have this illegal status and the stigma and discrimination prevents us being public. And so decriminalization is needed for that reason, for safety. There's been a lot of progress. I mean, public opinion is really with us. It's just the politicians that we have to deal with, unfortunately. And with, you know, so that campaign is ongoing and we do have New Zealand to look to as a model with a few tweaks, because there are some parts of that legislation that we don't want, particularly the way that it targets migrant sex workers. And we did make progress, even within Parliament, you know, the Home Affairs Committee here did recommend back in 2016 that sex workers on the street and working together from premises should be decriminalised. And that was a recommendation to the government and could be implemented very quickly and easily. So that's one area and priority. We have a petition for decriminalisation that people can sign and ongoing campaigns on that. But as you said, we are also really focused on the issue of women's poverty. So we're very much part of campaigns against, first of all, against universal credit altogether, but particularly to reinstate the extra 20 pounds a week. We're part of trade union campaigns for labor rights, and we did get some support from the trade union movement for our fight for decriminalization. You know, so we're really embedded in a lot of other working class community campaigns for more money and for more rights and against criminalization, pointing to the kind of police abuse and racism and sexism that we suffer at the hands of the police. And so in terms of what people can do to help, I know it sounds a bureaucratic procedure in some ways, but it's not. If you are a member of a trade union, a women's group at university, part of a student's group, passing a motion for decriminalization is not a worthless task because the, what the basis of it is, is that you have to have conversations with people and people have to make up their mind that first of all, that this is a issue that they think is important enough to act on, 
and what they think about it. And that helps build a groundswell of public opinion that is going to be the thing that moves politicians to act on this issue. We've been, unfortunately, dealing with a relentless set of proposals to criminalise clients, and we've been very active opposing that. But we're also active with the Global Women's Strike, with the Wages for Housework campaign, pressing for a care income. The reason is, is that we know that if we had that money in our hands for the work that we do, raising children, caring for others in the community, caring for the land, you know, and the natural environment, we wouldn't have had to go into prostitution in the first place, or we'd have more choices to lose. And that really works out in women's lives. You know, one of the women recently was saying, if they gave me the money that they pay somebody else to care for my disabled daughter, I wouldn't be in prostitution. And that really has to be a bottom line for us. We want acknowledgement for that work so that we can get out of prostitution or we can actually fight for better conditions within our workplaces. And that's also really important to people's safety and well-being. Nikki Adams, you've been a superb guest. The work of the English Collective of Prostitutes over the decades has been absolutely fantastic. And I wish all power to you. Thank you, Leanne. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast.